Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoCiv podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the EcoCiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you've enjoyed this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecociv.org donate. For today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with political activist David Cobb. As you will hear, David has been involved in progressive and radical politics in the U.S. for many years. He was the Green Party presidential candidate for the 2004 election, and then in 2016, he served as the campaign manager for fellow Green Jill Stein during her presidential run. More recently, David has dedicated much of his time and energy to the nonprofit organization Cooperation Humboldt, which works to build a more democratic and sustainable economy in Humboldt County, California. In my conversation with David, we discuss many topics, including his experiences in U.S. politics, the notion of solidarity economies as an alternative to capitalism, worker-owned cooperatives, Green New Deals, and how he holds on to what he calls a contradictory sense of outrage and optimism at the same moment in the midst of escalating planetary crises. And now, here's David Cobb. Welcome, everyone. I'm pleased to be here with David Cobb today. David is a people's lawyer who has sued corporate polluters, lobbied elected officials, run for political office, and been arrested for nonviolent civil disobedience. David and I both happen to live in Humboldt County, California, where David is doing important work to promote social and ecological justice through the organization Cooperation Humboldt, which will be the main focus of our conversation today. So welcome, David. Thank you, Austin. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you're here. Before we discuss your work with Cooperation Humboldt, um, I think it would be great for our listeners to hear something more about your background. So how did you first get involved in politics and activism, and when did that transition towards environmental concerns for you? It's a great question, Austin. Uh, I'll say this. I often say I got my start in politics as a student radical at the University of Houston, where we were working to force the administration to divest its investment from corporations that do business with the apartheid regime of South Africa. And that's where I got my start in, quote, politics, Mm -hmm. end quote. Of course, we weren't trying to elect anyone, but it was definitely political because we were trying to impact a particular policy. And, you know, Austin, I learned a lot uh, working on the anti-apartheid campaign. One thing I learned was if you follow the rules as the ruling elite have laid out for you and you show up at their meetings and give your three-minute spiel and then sit down, they pat you on the head and nothing changes. But when you it up and disrupt the system and take over the Board of Regents meeting, you can actually force the ruling elite to make changes. So I got my start in, quote, politics probably as a student radical at the University of Houston. Uh, And it was from that work uh, in the early 80s that as a student, when Jesse Jackson sought the Democratic Party's nomination uh, for president in 1984, I became the key student uh, organizer of uh, Jesse Jackson for president at the University of Houston. 
In 88, I went on to be uh, an, a more active participant uh, with Jesse Jackson's campaign. In 92, I worked on Jerry Brown's campaign as a, a, a volunteer. And I learned a lot uh, during that process. And for Jesse, specifically as a white person, I learned how to put myself under the leadership of people of color for the first time in my life. Uh, I learned about the intersections of race and gender. I learned how to bring together environmentalists and trade union activists. I learned about Palestine and US foreign policy. I learned a lot. You know what else I learned? that the Democratic Party's presidential primary is where progressive politics goes to die. Because all the energy, all the enthusiasm, all the excitement that was generated in that campaign got squashed as it does every single time uh, by the ruling elite. So it was in 1999 that I then went on to help form the Green Party of Texas mm. uh, and then went on to manage Ralph Nader's campaign in Texas in 2000. So. My start in electoral politics actually came out of movement work. So your involvement in the Green Party here locally is something you're still involved in? Or? I am. I, I mean, to finish the description around Green Party stuff, uh, in 1999, I helped form the Green Party of Texas, and then, because I was a lawyer, was traveling around the country helping other state parties get formed, navigating the election code, navigating the, uh, the, 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 the really Byzantine process to engage radical left electoral politics in this country. In 2002, I ran for attorney general in the state of Texas on the Green Party ticket pledging to use that office to revoke the charters of corporations that routinely violate health, safety, environmental protection laws. Uh, in 2004, I sought and won the Green Party's nomination to be President of the United States. Uh, in 2016, I just managed Jill Stein's pre uh, presidential campaign. Uh, so I am still a Green, but the reality is almost all of my efforts these days are working here in Humboldt County where I and we live, work, play, and pray. I have come to the conclusion that unless we build local, workable, replicable examples of how we can actually meet our needs to not just survive, but to thrive, to live those rich, meaningful lives, um, we're going to actually see an end to civilization as we understand it. It's an amazing career trajectory you had, and, and now it's led you to this organization, Cooperation Humboldt, um, which is, as I understand, your full-time job now. It is. Um, and I guess the, the main way I understand the description of this organization is that you're committed to building solidarity economies. Correct. Now, um, for our listeners who do not know about this term or this concept, I'm, I'm wondering if you can help us understand this and, and what this involves, what this looks like on the ground as well. Yes. So first, let's remember that the economy, the word, actually comes from Greek. Mm -hmm. You know this, of course, mm -hmm. but for your listeners, uh, mm -hmm. and you as a listener may already know it, but let's ground it, right? Good. It actually means the management of the household, right. right? So the reality is we're all economists, uh, but in our current society, we've been trained to think that economics is something out there or that only the experts understand or know. We disagree with that. We think that ordinary people can actually understand economy, can understand how to manage both resources and how to make and implement decisions about how society should be organized. Mm -hmm. The reality is that we live in a capitalist economy now. 
And we believe that, that that capitalist economy is literally going to destroy the planet if we do not interrupt it. And so for us, we make a distinction between a capitalist economy, which we can come back and talk about, versus a solidarity economy that is grounded in a different set of characteristics and a different set of principles. So it's specifically a post-capitalist vision. It is absolutely post-capitalist. Now, I'll own this, Austin. I am personally an anti-capitalist. Mm. I work with a lot of people who are more comfortable saying that they're post-capitalist because there are some parts, especially of market allocation or uh, of labor theory that, that might be appropriate. I'm an explicit anti-capitalist. I work with a lot of people, though, who are post-capitalist, who say we have to evolve past it. I even work with people who believe that capitalism can be reformed. Now, I don't. But what's important to note is that there is capitalist, there is anti-capitalist, and there is post-capitalist. And those things are actually distinct. Hmm. Can you can you separate those for us real quick? And, sure. and I want to come back to solidarity economies, but this is a good distinction to make. So let's remember this: that uh, again, so many people pretend as if well, you can't talk about capitalism because it's too complicated. Well, it's true that folks have been uh, miseducated, but I think I can give you a definition of capitalism and your listeners that any. Uh, economics professor, including Milton Friedman, would have to agree with. And it goes like this. There are really five characteristics of the capitalist economy. The first is the private ownership of the means of production. Right? Yep. The second one is that products are produced as commodities that must be sold. Thirdly, that profit maximization of the commodity sale is what drives that entire process. Fourth, that market allocation is how you administer that overall process. And the, the fifth is that labor is a commodity that's bought and paid for as well. So those five key characteristics are what actually make up a capitalist economy. And I can't help but to notice that you're nodding your head yes, so I'm going to ask, honestly, does that definition and those characteristics, does that seem like a fair starting point for what capitalism is? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I would submit to you this, Austin. I can tell that to any reasonably intelligent junior high student. I can break down what capitalism actually is that any reasonably intelligent person can absolutely understand. And I'm going to go a step further and tell you this. If you take those characteristics that you and I have just agreed are the actual definition of capitalism, you put them together and it is the ideology of cancer. It presumes unlimited growth on a finite planet. It's going to destroy the world if we actually don't interrupt it. That's because the unlimited growth is demanded of a profit maximization. That doesn't even cover the fact that even if it wasn't going to destroy the planet, which it is, it is even inherently unfair because capital, just having the money, becomes a way to make money. Labor, like, labor itself is exploited as a commodity. <laughs> You couple that with the fact that we're producing for commodity to be bought and paid for at a profit, not human need. 
So capitalism is really, really good at producing goods and services. Yeah. No doubt about that. Mm -hmm. It sucks at equitable dissemination and distribution of those goods and services. And even if, and this is where the, the solidarity economics and eco-socialism comes into play, I wouldn't even be happy though if we said, okay, we're gonna take all the goods and services and distribute it evenly because we'll still destroy the planet. So capitalism it, as an economic system based on those characteristics, ultimately it, we must have post-capitalism because that's the notion of going beyond. So now bring us back to the notion of a solidarity economy. Um, and I noticed you just maybe equated solidarity economy with eco-socialism or those overlapping terms? They're you... overlapping terms and, and, and uh, eco-socialism engages the political process uh, uh, into that, uh, oh. uh, which I think is totally fair to do, but you're right to, to, to point out that they are overlapping but not synonymous. I've defined capitalist economy. The solidarity economy is grounded in a different set of principles. And although they vary in exactly what they look like from place to place, the common ethos of solidarity economy uh, is a commitment to putting people and planet above profit. And I have the honor of serving on the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network Board of Directors, and we actually talk about five principles. First, a commitment to solidarity, cooperation and mutualism. And remember that mutualism is a two-way street. So second is equity in all dimensions. And by that we mean race and ethnicity and nationality and gender, right? Third, a commitment to participatory democratic decision-making of how those decisions are made. And let's just note that that is in direct diametric uh, opposition to private ownership of the means of production. Uh, the fourth is a commitment to deep ecology or sustainability. And lastly, and this is important, a, a, an understanding of pluralism, which is to say there can be many different ways to get to people and planet above profit. So I and we are not rigid in saying this is the one true way. If you are grounded in those other principles, then we say we are very ecumenical mm -hmm. uh, about it. It's also why there are some folks who actually believe capitalism can be, quote, reformed through some twitch, uh, tweaks to the market or tweaks to the legal system, mm -hmm. and they get to be part of the solidarity economy, uh, even though, again, I don't think they're right. I think that we actually have to restructure the economic system and the legal system and the political system in order to get uh, to, the, to genuine sustainability. But we are absolutely willing and able to work with folks who have a different orientation. So help us get a little bit more concrete about this restructuring of the economy. I understand uh, worker co-ops is central to this vision. Um, what is your vision for a more democratic form of economy under these terms? So I'm glad that you talked about cooperatives because as an economic system, uh, a worker-owned cooperative enterprise is just like any other business in the sense that it exists to provide a good or service. The difference is in a worker-owned cooperative, the workers actually own 
the means of production. So that's the distinction right there. It's not just private ownership. Now, it can look a lot of different ways. There are some worker-owned cooperatives that they say all decisions are made collectively and evenly. But if you get too big, and, and I mean just a little bit big, that becomes unworkable. So most worker-owned cooperatives above, say, 10 to 15 employees begin a traditional Marxist division of labor. The difference is there's an absolute understanding that even if there is a division of labor, the pay rate is almost always uh, much, much more horizontal. The difference between one job and another, the pay rate is, is very uh, minimal. Uh, why? Because all of the workers have to already have agreed to it to begin with. Now, there, the difference between a worker-owned cooperative and, say, a consumer cooperative is pretty important. I mean, you know, we live here in Eureka where we have a very nice grocery store uh, mm -hmm. called The Co-op. But the reality is it's a consumer co-op. Uh, it's not actually a worker-owned cooperative, so it doesn't feel much different to me than a regular grocery store. And you know why? Because it's not much different than a real grocery store. It's a little more eco-groovy. It's, it's a little better, but it's not my vision. My vision is actually worker-owned cooperatives because that's when you put power and agency in the hand of the worker to actually allow them to make the decisions about how to operate the business. That's an important distinction. I mean, but this raises the question, are there any examples of this actually working? I mean, oh my God. Where, where can you find this? Well, the first place that I would encourage folks to take a look at so that you can really get a sense of scale, go to Spain. Look at the Mondragon uh, uh, cooperatives. I mean, I think that uh, that is the fourth or fifth largest corporation in the entire nation of Spain. And the whole thing is a cooperative. And in fact, it's like, like it, it is a huge part of the Spanish economy and it's incredibly complex as a business organization, but it is at its core, a cooperative. And in fact, I say at its core it's a cooperative because it's actually a series of interconnected cooperatives, right? Mm. That are that are like some of them are making refrigerators and some of them are making furniture and some of them are making shoes and some of them are are providing accounting services. Like, look it up. The Mondragon uh, uh, cooperative model is the one I would encourage people to start with because I want folks to understand that this is not just like, you know, for trading massages or, uh, or, uh, or trading house cleaning services. You can absolutely do those things, but it is absolutely possible to imagine an entire modern economy operating as a series of interconnected cooperatives if there was the political will to create a legal and political system that actually facilitated that. If there was that will to bring this about, perhaps that begins on a local level, the way that Cooperation Humboldt is trying to build this here in Humboldt County, would it be necessary to abolish top-down business models? Or is there a chance for worker co-ops to actually compete mm -hmm. against traditional models of business? Um, and, and if so, the skeptic might say, well, the top-down model uh, would seem to have all the leverage. It mm -hmm. has the history, the weight of history behind it. Um, there's obviously a lot of accumulated power. And so what are the measures that need to be taken to ensure that this more democratic form of economy materializes? Great question, and I would tell you this, that there are a lot of, like right now, the co-ops are in fact competing against the top-down models. 
no doubt about it. Uh, and uh, I can tell you that the the every economic survey and study that's been done that compares apples to apples, uh, uh, in other words, the same type of business compared to the same type of business, worker-owned cooperatives last longer than uh, their counterparts. Worker-owned cooperatives are more profitable uh, than their counterparts. Worker-owned cooperatives pay better uh, than their uh, counterparts. I mean, in every way, I would argue to you, Austin, the co-op model is better. It is the existing economic, political, and legal systems that are incentivizing and privileging the current model is the only reason that the co-ops have not already uh, outperformed and become the way of everything. So uh, ultimately, I think that we are going to have to come to terms with the fact that uh, the way finance and money as debt actually operates uh, has got to actually uh, be not only confronted, but I think deconstructed, dismantled, uh, and changed. So the very concept of money and how it actually operates, I believe, needs to change. But you know, you talk, you said the skeptic might say, "Well, of course that's true, right?" Like, but the reality is that if we don't interrupt this system cl between climate change and emerging fascism, like, look. The reality is that we are in a historic conjuncture. And, you know, if you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow, 99 times out of 100, just study what's happening today and you can predict what will happen tomorrow. If you really want to understand what's happening today, 99 times out of 100, just look at what happened yesterday and study that. And then you can better understand the context and the history of how it went. And that's almost always true, 99 times out of 100. A historic conjuncture is one of those moments, big picture moments in history, where inherent contradictions become so untenable that there is a break. I will argue that the reason fascism emerged in the 1930s is because we were moving from an agrarian society globally to an industrial society globally, and those shifts had to be uh, dealt with. Those inherent contradictions had to be dealt with. Because remember, fascism is not just a totalitarianism. It is a political philosophy about how to organize society around the nation state and around who is the we and who is the they. It is a, a way to merge the economic might of corporations with the military might of the nation state. Fascism emerged because of the historic conjuncture of the 1930s. Austin, we are in a historic conjuncture. And that's because with robotics and automation and technology coming online the way it is, the old system of capitalism that I just described to you is going to end. It has to because even for the capitalist, let's say I'm the capitalist and you're the worker. I didn't put you to work because I care about you and your family and want to make sure you have enough money to, to buy things. I put you to work to extract the surplus value of your labor. I put your friend to work to extract the surplus value of your labor. I put the listener to work. Can you guess why? To extract the surplus value of your labor. The more people I put to work, the more I make as long as I can sell those goods and services on the market. I'm actually competing against other capitalists. Now here's the thing, with automation, technology, robotics, I don't need workers, or at least not as many. And work as we understand it is coming to an end. But here's the problem, the capitalist 
does profit maximization by putting workers to work. Literally, capitalism as currently practiced is going to end. So I put it to you and I put it to your listeners. This historic conjuncture, the neoliberal center is going to collapse. It's collapsing now and it's going to collapse in the next 10, 20 years. And guess what? We will either have some version of eco-socialism or some version of fascism. The center will not hold. So the point I'm trying to make here is that it is very hard to have a meaningful conversation the way we're having and separate economics from politics from law. Because the law is the way that you legitimize the systems and structures uh, that are put into place. And politics are just how decisions are made to allocate scarce resources and then to create a process to legitimize how those uh, decisions were made. Mm. You can't really have, that's why political economy really ought to be the topic of the conversation because there is no such thing as a true laissez-faire uh, system. Government and the state is involved in creating those. Right. Something I wanted to make sure we discuss because it continues to be important culturally in our in our country is all discussions of the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. Now I understand the Green Party has long been discussing a, a Green New Deal. Now it's in the air through Democrats. Uh -huh. um, would the current proposal for a Green New Deal were it to go forward, how would this potentially play a role in getting us to this vision of a more democratic economy. I, lo I love the question, uh, and in order to answer it, I have to, to, to insist that we take one moment to acknowledge that there's not one, not two, but really three Green New Deals. The first Green New Deal actually was, in fact, proposed by the Green Party, uh, and the Green Party's Green New Deal, what I will call the real Green New Deal, actually calls to uh, completely shift uh, energy production away from fossil fuels uh, and nuclear power to sustainable uh, 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 energy, wind, solar, geothermal, etc. And it calls uh, to completely dismantle uh, the military-industrial complex uh, and shift the, the global uh, policy, not only for U.S. foreign policy, but really uh, geopolitics. And thirdly, and this is really important, it actually does call uh, to uh, democratize and localize economic decisions. That includes, by the way, and the Green Party's Green New Deal, the elimination of unemployment offices and the creation of local employment offices, where you show up and say, I want, I'm ready to work, and the person behind the desk says, great, the community has already decided and prioritized, here are the things that we need done, let's find out the one that works the best for you, and you have, and get this, Austin, you don't just have a responsibility for meaningful productive work, you have the right to it. Because I think it's important to recognize that human beings want to work. By work, we mean meaningful productive human activity. People don't want a job where they're shit on and pushed around and exploited and oppressed. They want work. We say you have a right to work. Um, so that's the Green New Deal. And you notice I talked about uh, energy production and uh, moving away from fossil fuels that's driving the climate crisis. But it also included restructuring the economy and also dealt with the military industrial complex. The second Green New Deal uh, is what was initially proposed by AOC and Bernie Sanders. And that's great 
in terms of shifting the environment uh, and the uh, protecting the environment and moving away from fossil fuels. Their proposed Green New Deal is actually very good on that front, but it does not actually call to restructure the economy and it does not touch the military industrial complex. The third Green New Deal is what Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the Democrats are proposing. And Austin, let's be clear, that Green New Deal is neither green nor new nor a deal. <laughs> it, is, it is the proverbial lipstick on a pig. All to say this, I want to acknowledge that what AOC and Sanders and other genuine progressive Democrats are proposing is a very good first step. But really, we need the full, real Green New Deal to talk about localizing and democratizing economic decisions and dealing with the military industrial complex and U.S. foreign policy. So there really are three Green New Deals. Two of those would absolutely begin the shift. What the neoliberal uh, corporatist Democrats uh, are doing will not. And it does, I mean, I know this is a limited conversation, but the reality is we should come to terms with the fact that there is an absolute intellectual war going on in the current Democratic Party, and those two positions are untenable. So this is... This is at once an inspiring vision that you put forward. It's also a little bit overwhelming when you consider where we're at. Climate change continues to spiral out of control. We are in the beginning stages of a sixth mass extinction. Inequality is at unprecedented levels. And yet you say that only the most revolutionary changes will fix the crisis. How do we avoid feeling a sense of despair um, when we can't even keep basic environmental regulations intact under, say, the Trump administration? Um, how, do, how do we stay focused on these goals and not get overwhelmed by the scale of changes needed? Uh, Austin, that's an existential question, and let's own it as an existential question. And so I guess what I would say is the first thing to do is if you or any listener is feeling a moment of despair, to experience that despair. We are, in fact, living in the sixth extinction. We are watching Australia burn. The, this is objective reality, and it is heart-wrenching, it is soul-crushing, and I, I weep, some, I mean, literally weep sometimes uh, at the immensity of the problem. That's just real. Uh, and I would encourage folks to learn uh, to hold that contradictory sense of outrage and optimism at the same moment. Part of the reason that I have focused so much on local work is because I have agency at the local level. I can help people build worker-owned cooperatives. I can help people learn to live in shared housing and ultimately develop housing cooperatives. I can help people create local or regional public banks. I can help people build, uh, convert their front yards into, into organic gardens. I can, I can help people build a little free pantry where they can share food and uh, household toiletries. Uh, and uh, hygiene, personal hygiene products. I can help people do all of these things at the local level and show them that it can actually work. 
my entire theory of change is premised upon fighting and stopping any harm that I can and creating new institutions and being willing to recognize that even those new institutions and fighting that harm is not enough, ultimately we have to restructure the whole thing. But we can't restructure the whole thing from the top down. We have to start here where we live, work, play, and pray with people that we actually see and talk to on a day-to-day -day basis and get involved with. Because here's the other thing. When you start to actually apply this in the real world with people, it all gets messy quickly. And you can't hold people to standards of theoretical perfection because none of us will meet those theoretical <laughs> standards of perfection, right? right. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that I've come to realize is too many uh, leftists, especially academic leftists, they're not playing to win. Hmm. They are perfecting their analysis, but they're not actually in the real world trying to apply it. Remember that, you know, uh, Marx and Trotsky and uh, and all the rest, they were actually like generals who were actually in the real world doing this work. So their theory was all based on a genuine sense of praxis, right? Remember, like, I do have a theory, but you know what? I try to apply the theory. And as I apply the theory, what I realize is I have to shift and tinker and adjust either my theory and or my practice based on what lived experience actually tells me about how uh, to move forward. So this is a way to answer the question, right? I get a lot of comfort from knowing that I'm doing my best. And I'll actually answer your existential question as raw and honestly as I can. It is a spiritual and political practice and it goes like this. The goddess does not expect me to succeed. That is not her demand of me. She demands that I do my best. So I do my best to assess what is happening. I do my best to make good plans based on that assessment. I do my best to implement those plans to the best of my ability. I do my best to adjust either my plan or my work based upon what is actually happening. I do my best every step of the way and here's the key, I release the result. It may not work. None of this may work. We may be on the proverbial Titanic and we've already hit the iceberg and there are in fact no lifeboats. That actually may be true, but I'm still gonna do my best. And there's something to be said if you are on that proverbial, li proverbial lifeboat and you have hit the iceberg and there are some lifeboats, there's something to be said to trying to get people on as many lifeboats as there can as opposed to just running over women and children, pushing them out of the way to try to get my own sorry ass on one of those lifeboats. I'm gonna to try to live with, an, uh, with as much compassion and kindness and dignity as I possibly can in this moment. Beautiful. Well, thank you, David. Um, before we wrap up, I wanna give you an opportunity to help our listeners bring these insights home wherever they are. Most of them are not in Humboldt County where you're doing your work. So while I'm going to link to Cooperation Humboldt uh, on the uh, podcast notes, I'm, I'm wondering if you can recommend some resources for our listeners about how they might uh, learn more about these, these ideas of solidarity economy, worker co-ops, and actually maybe get involved in, in their local communities. Well, thank you for that. And thanks for the kind words. I mean, of course, I do think that Cooperation Humboldt is a great place to look at what this looks like on the ground. Go to that website and check it out. 
Uh, I would also encourage folks to look at the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network, uh, and you'll see across all of the various sectors of the economy, there are thinkers and doers who are trying to create worker-owned cooperatives and participatory budgeting and public banking and you know uh, all of the different ways that, the, that we didn't even get a chance to touch on. I would also encourage folks uh, to check out the transition movement. Uh, it started in England, since this is, uh, you've got a global audience. Uh, I have the honor of serving on the Transition US Collaborative Design Council. So check out the transition movement, which is global. And for those of you who are in the US, Transition US is a great place to look. And what you'll find from starting to look at that from jump, you will immediately find interconnected networks of organizations and movements that are working in the same capacity. Lastly, I'm gonna do this quick plug. If you're in the US, uh, you should take a look at what is happening within the Democratic Party and watch it closely. Uh, because Bernie Sanders represents a true break from the existing Democratic Party. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is something in between. Every other candidate is a straight up neoliberal. So the fight for the, whoever the nominee in the Democratic Party now is profoundly important. Bernie Sanders represents something that we haven't seen I think ever, because as great as Jesse Jackson was, he wasn't actually talking about post-capitalism. Uh, so Bernie Sanders represents a real break with the existing system. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is trying to straddle something. I'm not excited about her, to be very blunt. Uh, and all the rest of them are neoliberals that I don't care about. Well, thank you so much, David. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, I wish you the best with Cooperation Humble. Thanks so much. <laughs>